This is episode 27 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. Things happened a little differently this week in that when we recorded this, we pretty much just dropped into having a conversation. So this episode has a slightly different format to what you're used to, and we're going to drop you straight into that conversations. Uh, without further ado, here's Robert Stutterford from Cognition joining us for a discussion around the closure programming language. So do you guys learn closure on the job? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, we, you know, I said we, we're 12 people at the moment um, and easily half of those people are either interns or kind of uh, developers who've been going for a while but have joined us as interns to be able to learn. Um, and we're pretty much, you know, half of us are teaching the other half. I think aside from Nikita Prokopov, who works for us from Russia, um, everybody's learned closure whilst working at Cognition. Um, you know, we've we've uh, known a little bit to begin with, and then built up the knowledge as as we go. Awesome! Yeah, that is awesome. That's a lot like the the Ruby story in a way as well. Eh? You just yeah, almost have no choice. You just got to teach the people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you got to teach them, but it, it's it's a it's quite a wonderful way to learn because you learn what you need to as you need it. You know, um, and almost everything you learn is practical. Um, and when you do go off into the conference talk, you know, watching the conference talks or whatever. Um, it really makes those, conf- you know, whatever you watch on those conference talks um, sensible and meaningful. And you actually get to kind of apply what you learn. So it works great. I mean, we're, we're all having a, a, a great time. And given that we are a, a learning company, um, learning's kind of just built into everything we do. Um, it seems like quite a good fit. Yeah, actually, how do you put it that way? It would be quite stupid to expect somebody to arrive at, you know, at a learning company and not learn. Yeah, no, definitely. And not get taught. Yeah. Would be quite a contradiction, I think. Hmm. So how long does it take uh, people to sort of get into it? Well, um, you know, there's aspects of closure which you can learn in a day, um, like the, the the basics of it. Like, for example, reading Lisp is very easy to do. Um, but then actually writing closure and uh, using the tools effectively, for example, one of the, the best editors for uh, closure is Emacs. Um you know, learning Emacs, um, as I'm sure you guys have uh, realized if you've ever tried, it's it's no small feat. Um, and uh, it takes, I mean, there was a great talk by Stuart Halloway, one of the um, the kind of the closure greats. He's on the core team and so on. He gave a great talk about um, closure adoption. And one of the things he spoke about in that podcast or in that episode was it takes about six months for you to get those alien superpowers um, of, of really, you know, getting to grips with the language and with the tools and with the, uh, the runtime on which the language runs. And once once you get a feel for all that stuff together, and you you feel that magic, um, yeah, that's some. If you're really lucky, you're looking at a couple months, but it's more like three, four, five, six, somewhere around there. There's just so much to yeah. take in. Yeah, I found just working in Emacs like full time took me about a month to sort of. Like, <laughs> How many of out. those weeks were swearing out loud? <laughs> quite a lot, man. Quite a lot. Yeah. I think the shortcut to getting to Emacs was just using Space Max. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of our guys are using Space Max. You know, they 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 come from having learned Vim before, um, and they swear by it. Um, I never learned Vim. I was I never kind of got got into that. Um, so I just went straight from I think I was using IntelliJ um, for JavaScript at the time, and I went straight from that into to Emacs. So it was quite rough, I'll be honest. 
Yeah. Uh, but that was also three years, four years ago now. So it's not rough anymore, thankfully. Yeah, it's a worthwhile investment. Absolutely. Yeah. I find having gone through the basic Emacs and now I'm using Space Max, it makes a lot more sense to me. Uh, it's you know, not, not just this like kind of fancy Vim. It is actually Emacs to me. And I know like quite a lot of the Control X or Alt X kind of things. Yeah. So it's, it's really neat. Yeah. I will actually say on the Emacs front, one of the things that we've done for all of the people learning on our team is they're all basically just using my Emacs config. Um, right. And I'm quite a minimalist by nature. I, you know, I learned 20 commands and I learned the, the hell out of them. And uh, that, those are the 20 commands I use and I get everything done with those. Um, and basically, I just teach those 20 commands off to the, uh, the rest of the people. Um, it makes, makes supporting them and teaching them how to do kind of rudimentary basic things, which would otherwise cripple them for a day. They can't figure out this 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 Emacs thing, um, that really really helps with that whole process. So, so when people join Cognition, how do they get started? Like, I mean, this is just related. We've got some new guys joining Cloud Africa, and it's it's quite a process, right? Like, getting them you know get install and all this kind of stuff. Like, how do you how do you bootstrap new guys? So, uh, Michael Prince, our esteemed friend, lost his temper with all of our scratchy um, manual <laughs> uh, developer scripting um, and spent about a week writing a ZSH plugin. Um, and now the ZSH plugin, aside from one or two people, we all swear by the ZSH plugin. And basically, if you've got this thing installed, along with good old Oh My ZSH, um, you know, there's like five or six commands. And when, the, when everything finishes downloading, You've got a running stack, databases, um, S3 buckets, all of the repos, you know, all of the closure script and closure. It's all just running and ready. That's that's completely weird. So would you install a ZSH plugin and then you sort of like go start and then it does Yeah, like- so I mean it knows how to fetch all of our Git repos. Um, it knows how to how to um, download our database backups, how to install all of our stuff. You know, we, we in terms of dependencies, we have very little. It's basically Java and Datomic. Um, okay. You yeah, know, and that's yeah. basically it. So, and it just gets everything installed, and that's been hugely, hugely helpful for for bootstrapping new folks. Um, so, so that plus the Emacs config, you know, we can pretty much get people into coding in week one. Hmm. So, uh, just taking a step back, like, how did you guys get started? I mean, what was the thing that you said? You know, we got to we got to use closure in our company it's going to be such a huge thing like we we think it's cool like or, or, you know talk to us about that what was what was the impetus and the thinking there so it's a little bit of a long you know roundabout story and i'll try to summarize as best i can but basically we had built a version one of our app you know the, the proof of concept that was going to get us the funding which it, it successfully did and that was with a php backend okay. and it was adobe flex and air remember those things Okay, this is getting more interesting. This, yeah, is, getting so this, more interesting. Is, this, is, this is six years ago, right? Oh, so okay. uh, small bit of news. Um, today is literally the first day of year six, or no, of year seven. With, oh, wow. With, uh, with co- uh, Cognition. So six years ago today, um, we started this whole thing. Anyway, happy, happy birthday. Happy thank birthday. You. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so version one was this PHP and um, Adobe Air and Flex lash up. Um, and we had, you know, pretty much proven that there was this thing at legs and we wanted to give it a real go start building out the um you know the scalable version right um, and and that time basically the the plan was to go ruby on rails and mongodb because i was tired of um the the, the tech we were using and mongodb right. you know at this point mongodb was the the new hotness yeah. um and so it was no js and i was you know we had the luxury of a bit of time to kind of really figure this stuff out and we were 
pretty much set. We were going to go with MongoDB and Rails or Node.js on the back, and it was a bit of a coin, a coin toss. Um, and at the, you know, whilst figuring out the back-end stuff, I was rebuilding our front-end using Google Closure JavaScript. Yes, I don't know if yes. anybody's seen that, but it's, um, it's basically how to write the most JavaScript to get the least amount of app. Yeah. Um, it's a very, very boast way of doing JavaScript. And the reason I went through all that pain was to benefit from its compiler. Uh, you know, which which produces incredibly tight, um, fast, performant, um, lean JavaScript. Yeah. Um, and eventually, you know, I got eleven thousand lines of code into that, and I was rapidly losing um, steam. Uh, couldn't keep my head around everything anymore. It was um, painful to change, painful to test, and all those horrible things. Um, and then, quite by accident, I discovered this bu- book on this weird Lisp language, Closure. Um, uh, I think it was closurebook.com. Okay. Um, and this book basically hit number one on some list, probably Hacker News. Um, and I had seen a couple of Rich Hickey talks um, before this, but I didn't really connect the dots that it was about this language. Um, and looked at this book and said, oh, you know, what have I got to lose? I'm, I'm, I'm about to choose something anyway. Let me just throw a third option into the ring. Um, and two crazy, heady weeks later, I had read the whole book and understood maybe 5% of it. But the five percent I understood, I loved, and I wanted to 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 do it and do it every day, all day. Um, and that that was when the um, you know the the learning journey started. And that's when I downloaded Emacs, uninstalled Emacs, reinstalled Emacs, and installed it again, reinstalled it, and then yeah, said, yeah, "Okay, yeah. here we yeah. go." I think when you lose when you lose track of how many times you've done it, that's when you're an Emacs user, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that was nearly four years ago. It was April April 2010. Oh wow, that's incredible. And and so, like, what was it about Clojure that you just said, like, this is better than uh, PHP Flex? Like, uh, so the, the perspective was, so at, you know, at that point, I had Ruby on Rails. I had done Rails stuff before, and I'd, I'd noodled around with the, the Node.js stuff. And I just couldn't see how I was going to get to a big code base and not lose my mind. I had built a big Ruby um, code base, Rails code base before, back in Rails 1.2, uh, 1. I think it was. So really showing my age now. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd lost my way pretty quickly there. Um, and I knew based on what we were building um, that we wanted to deal with scale. We wanted to be able to keep things simple. And basically, you know, the, the, the stuff that Rich was saying in his videos really, really resonated with me. Um, he, he gives a really good talk on simple versus easy. Um, yep. I don't know if you guys have talked about Richie on the on the podcast before, but I, I can happily share the the talk. Um, and basically, the way he was approaching this whole um, solving problems with software thing, um, you know, it really fits uh, my mindset. Um, and when I when I saw the stuff executed in the code, that one, then I knew I was in. Yeah, that guy's very dangerous, man. <laughs> <laughs> Every time you watch his videos, like he changes your mind. You yeah, know? that's very true, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so you, 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 that simple versus easy thing is very compelling. And if anybody hasn't seen it, they should go right away and, and look at that video. I mean, it really doesn't matter. I think it's, he it, it doesn't really talk about closure much in that video, right? But no, it's, it's, it's very um, pertinent to what we're doing today as modern developers. Absolutely. There's actually a number of his talks. Um, there was a great post on the changelog a while back where they kind of just did his greatest hits. Um, and simple versus easy plus a number of other talks are all on there and they're all absolute gold. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure we, we're going to talk more about him. I'm sure. Okay. So then you, you, you got your kind of first version up in, in closure. How long did that take you? And, uh, 
So at that point, up until that point, basically, uh, uh, you know, it was a one-man shop. It was just little old me. Um, and we knew that we, we needed to grow the team. And so we were looking around for a while. Um, and uh, it's actually quite funny. The, the first guy we hired, a guy by the name of Francois Dutoy, um, joined us. His first day was two years after I joined, so to the day. So it's his fourth year anniversary today. Oh, wow. um, and his first day, he was all on his own because it was the first time I went to go um, uh, attend ScaleConf. <laughs> so, you know, he had, and basically his instructions were learn this Ruby thing so that we can start building things with Ruby. Um, and then, you know, two months later, we said, okay, now forget the Ruby thing. Let's learn this closure thing. So he had an interesting start. <laughs> um, and, and it was basically from that point until launch um, was about eight months, I'd say. Um, so it was April to the following January. It was just the two of you that whole time? or did um, you? So by the time we launched, we were, I think, four developers. Okay. Um, so we hired um, another guy in the middle of the year and then another guy towards the end of the year. Right. Um, and then, yeah, and it was the kind of the four of us that pushed it over the finish line. And then what what sort of code base size had you got to by launch time? By launch time, we were probably all in, all of the tests and all of the scratchy DevOps code and everything. We were probably at about 30,000 lines of code. Wow. That's, that's especially on the list, that's quite a lot. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a fair amount. But, you know, three years later, we're at 50,000, 60,000 lines of code. Yeah, that's incredible. That's actually incredible. And and have you found you needed to go back and re-engineer parts that you originally wrote for you? Oh hell yes. You perhaps had just just about okay. everything. <laughs> so so the thing to remember about the code we launched with, it was written by noobs. People who didn't know this really know this closure thing. People who were still thinking like object oriented developers, you know, thinking in terms of mutable state and all those things. Um we hadn't really got I mean, there's still uh, still, you know, revisit code that we wrote back then. And I can see the object orientation kind of shining through um, and the procedural and the imperative code shining through. Um, we still, I still feel very much like a student of this stuff. I don't, you know, I've, I've just done a lot of it. I don't feel like an expert at all yet. Um, it's, yeah, and it's, and, it's, and it's thanks to that Rich Hickey guy. He keeps on, you know, showing me what I'm up to. Yeah, and then, and then he built a database, which was just equally dangerous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But that's what I was thinking. You guys came, came in at this as, you know, Rubyists um, coming from object-oriented languages and had to build this thing uh, using something that's in a completely different style of programming. Yeah. You know, Lisp, functional, um, immutability is key to that. I like to, I mean, I love how you were willing to hedge your business on this technology, having just basically just heard a bunch of talks by this rich hickey guy who as you say you know you listen to him and you change your mind yeah absolutely um have you had any cases or was there a point where you started down this road that you thought hey this might not be the right idea so i i don't think so um and that's probably less to do with the the utility of closure and more to do with just the way that i think um and i'm i am quite um uh, you know, risk. Uh, I, you know, when it comes to to um, trying new things, I'm, I've got a, a great appetite for it. Um, and I guess you know, having built a lot of things with a lot of other languages, so, so a little bit about my background, which might help to um, um, explain this. Before cognition, I was a freelance developer. Basically, I did lots of different things for lots of different people: touchscreens with Flash, uh, Ruby on Rails websites, PHP websites. Um, I had done .NET stuff. 
Um, so I'd, I'd had a taste of a lot of different kind of programming languages um, and in basically in the imperative and, and, and OO state, um, and particularly with Flex, which, you know, is, is quite a beast all of its own, um, really struggled and railed against the um, kind of the state ball, you know, the, 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 the state mud ball that you end up with um, if you're not careful in OO. Um, and really str struggled and, and battled with that um, over and over and over. And, and when I found this closure thing um, and saw kind of this this extreme focus on simplicity and keeping things separate and simple and decoupled, um, it felt like the way, you know, capital W way. Um, and it, it really felt to me very quickly once I got my head around the basics that it was going to be more risky not to use this language than to use it. Um, you know, because otherwise we were going to go back down the road of, um, you know, creating all this incidental complexity, um, which which keeping things separated allows you to avoid. I don't know if that answers your question, but it it, it does, um, yeah, answer some of it. I think absolutely. <clears throat> so I just want to ask before we venture down this too far, for those of us that's not really familiar with closure and its backstory and where it came from. You mind catching us up quickly? Sure. So um, the guy who made Clojure, a um, guy by the name of Rich Hickey, who had for a long time beforehand built big distributed systems. He'd done voting systems, um, lots of C++. I think he had lectured for a while, um, you know, teaching university students about programming and so on. And he was trying to find a way to bring the lessons from the Lisp world, which is like 60 years, 50 years old now, um, into the modern day. Um, he found there were so many great ideas from back then um, that we just weren't leveraging, we just weren't taking advantage of, kind of the, you know, the stuff that had become prevalent and dominant um, 20 years later, 30 years later, the whole object-oriented movement had basically taken over. And he was saying, well, you know, there's, there's stuff on the table here. We've we got to try it out. And so he actually tried a couple times before he made it, got it right with Clojure. Um, I think there was a thing called .lisp, which he built in .NET, we tried to build an, an embedded Lisp interpreter, which you could use in your .NET app. And eventually, um, he built this closure thing. And, and what he was trying to do is to bring the awesomeness that Lisp provides um, and this, this, this notion of doing things immutable first rather than mutable first together into a place where it could be used by kind of the modern working programmer rather than off to the side in some weird runtime. You know, I'm looking at you, Haskell. Um, and and basically, I think he succeeded wonderfully. Um, it is an incredibly approachable language, even even it, you know it looks like alien hieroglyphics to begin with. Um, it's incredibly approachable. It's incredibly practical. You can get stuff mm. done on day one. Yeah, I was just to add to that. I mean, he was working in industry, and he wanted a language, as far as I understand, that he could build real world stuff like right away. There was mm. no you know, there's no no long uh, time from. And I'm trying to write code to getting it into production. Yeah. And the interop with the, on top of the JVM, I mean, because that's my understanding is you can pull in what you need. There's not this need to rewrite everything. Well, yeah, um, so, so, so he, he made a very interesting choice when he wrote Clojure. Instead of writing his own virtual machine and then going, you know, forcing um, a, another runtime onto everybody, he basically, he actually started with the .NET runtime first. Um, and then he very quickly was doing the .NET runtime and the Java runtime in parallel and eventually gave up the .NET one and, and focused on the Java one. But basically, he, instead of trying to rebuild all of that OS-level stuff um, and all of those rich libraries, he said, well, you know, instead of rebuilding, let's just continue to use it. 
Um, and so Clojure, by definition, is a hosted language. There is no Clojure runtime. Um, and by default, it runs on the JVM, although there are still some folks, Intrepid Explorers, who maintain the, the Clojure CLR version. Um, and there are many interesting late-night experiments into Lua backends, Python backends, C and C++ backends, you know, um, and all taking great advantage of the fact that Clojure is designed to be hosted. Mm. Um, and because of that, you know, all the, all the cool Java stuff you can just use. You don't have to um, use a special interrupt layer or a bridging um, system of some sort. You just pull it in, um, grab the class name, and start, start calling methods. Yeah, it sounds like a great win. Yeah, and it, it, the, the approach really um, paid its dues when he got to building ClojureScript. Um, because all that stuff just came, you know, was for free. It already figured it all out, and he just got to basically tie it, tie it all into the Google Clojure um, library, um, which Google obviously maintains for their JavaScript stuff, their big JavaScript stuff. Um, and, he, you know, he just got to benefit from all that hard work he'd done in Clojure um, and, you know, get to a win far more quickly um, with the JavaScript um, uh, version. I think, it, I think it took him like nine months or something to do. So that's a nice segue into ClojureScript. So what's it, the difference? Is it the same thing? It just compiles down to JavaScript? Yeah, that's exactly it. Or no other significant, it's trying to be something special for the browser or? So it's, it's basic. So Clojure, if you would did quickly define what Clojure is, it's basically a big core library of macros and functions, which you use to manipulate immutable data structures. Um, there's a fairly large interrupt surface um, area. You know, um, on the on the JVM side, there's a bunch of stuff for dealing with file systems and all that stuff. Um, and then there's also a fairly consistent and actually a completely consistent interrupt um, kind of syntax. So when you're dealing with closure uh, um, uh, values, um, immutable data structures, you use things a certain way. But as soon as you're working with some mutable, uh, you know, object, um, there's a very clear syntax for dealing with those. For it. So you can you can actually write Java with closure, or you can write like stateful object oriented. Um, JavaScript with um, with ClojureScript. You don't have to use all the cool stuff ClojureScript brings you. Um, and uh, yeah, so so what ClojureScript brings to the browser is it brings those that awesome core library of functional um, you know programming, and it brings the immutable data structures. Um, and the the win for me is the immutable data structures by far. Um, and the like a, a nice little add on is the fact that we at Cognition anyway we get to use one language one language for our entire stack. And it isn't JavaScript. <laughs> I was just going to say, it sounds so much better than trying to do the isomorphic JavaScript yeah. mess. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we, we, we write Clojure on the back end, ClojureScript on the front end. We ship EDN, or extensible data notation, which is basically just a subset of the Clojure language for expressing, you know, static data. Um, and that's what goes over the wire. So, you know, we never look at anything that isn't a Lisp, basically. So does that mean that there's a chunk of... Um packages, whatever you may call them in Clojure, that may have been written in Clojure that perhaps don't use this interrupt that, you know, f uh, file extensions and things like that, sure. um, that are able to just be run through ClojureScript uh, without any change to the code. Uh, yep, that's exactly right. Um, we've got many um, such libraries. Um, you know, some, but sometimes because of the fact that uh, ClojureScript is com compiled to JavaScript, it's a whole program compilation. So it's a compilation step separate to the running, whereas Java is compiled and you know, almost interpreted as, as you go. Um, there are some changes to the language. So macros are, are still written in Clojure rather than ClojureScript. 
And because of those kind of differences, you do end up having some differences in the code. Um, but even so, the Clojure and Clojure scripts um, compilers have already got really nice ways for dealing with that, almost so that they're unnoticed, you know, you no longer notice them. Um, and But yeah, basically, um, you know, if you're asking about that whole code reuse thing, um, we do have code that we use on the client and on the server, and it's the same code kept in the same place in Git, um, you know, and we, you know, we use it to create stuff on the client and we use it to interpret stuff on the back end. That's very cool. Oh, now that is awesome. I mean, the, the thing that we always battle with, right, is you've got, say, client-side validations that you want to do in the JavaScript, and you've got server-side validations that need to do the same thing. And then because we're working in different languages, we need to try and keep these things in sync somehow. Yeah. And it sounds like this sounds, well, this gives you a really good tool to deal with that problem and um, avoid the duplication. Absolutely. And, and, and it's not just, you know, your own code that you benefit from. Like you mentioned earlier, there are libraries out there. Um, one in particular, which Len might know about having done some closure himself, is a library called Schema. Um, mm -hmm. And what it does is basically allow you to d define, um, kind of like a type system, but not. Define the shape of your data in a, a kind of a generic fashion. And then you can use that for validation, for self-describing data, all sorts of cool things, um, you know, for preconditions on function calls so that you can validate that your data is in the right shape, all that kind of stuff. Um, and this this works both client and server um, with no effort, you know, on your part. Um, and that's just one example of many. There there are there have been really good attempts to do that whole isomorphic thing. Um, we've got one code base that produces code that can run either client or server, render the page uh, like a single page app or render it server side, you know, as a, as a graceful fallback. Still a bit of work to do there, but they're very close, I think. Mm. I think there's some work now in the latest closure release where you can add metadata to say what the differences are when compiling for closure and closure script. Oh, right. I hadn't seen that yet. Yeah. That's kind of just like annotations in, in Java or one of those languages. Compiler flags in C? Or is it something that's closer to the actual... You know the actual AST that you write. Uh, very, yeah. much, very much on the AST. It's runtime metadata, so you can you can in inspect it at runtime, basically. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So what's quite nice, Kevin, is you can have a library that you can pull in either to the back end or the front end, and then depending on whether it's Java or, or JavaScript, the compiler will be sensitive to the metadata and do different things. But that's transparent to you. You don't have to worry about that. Yeah. The, the library builder can sort of annotate, as you say what to do in what cases and the compiler will just take care of it it's a very cool idea okay it's a bit like rust's compiler where you've got um annotations that you can put onto functions i knew that you were going to bring up that rust that <laughs> I have to. sorry i'm addicted <laughs> i was biting my tongue yeah <laughs> well that's what we programmers do right we we try to understand new things in the context of the things we already understand yeah and it isn't it wonderful when you find a language, I mean, this goes for Rust and Clojure in this case, that sort of maps to your the way you think about the world. Yeah. You know? I'll, so, I'll, I'll be very honest that Clojure did not map to the way I thought about the world. It, it mapped to the way I wanted <laughs> to think about the world. <laughs> it was very much an unlearning, not a learning. Right. Right. But when you think about things now, does Clojure come naturally? Does it, is it easier? Oh, yes, absolutely. Now, now I can't imagine doing anything else. Right, yeah, you look at another language and you just think, oh, like, what are these, what is that code about? That's going to be a mess, right? 
Sometimes, yeah, you know, I can still look at, uh, um, you know, object-oriented code and, and see beauty. Uh, I, I actually had quite a lot of fun working with Unity 3D um, just before I joined Cognition, um, building an iPhone app of all things. And the the, the hosted language there is C-sharp. Um, and I actually quite enjoy C-sharp. Uh, you know, if, if I ever had to do OO again, I would probably use that language because it's quite quite a lot of fun to use. Um, but but you know if I if I got a problem to solve if I want to just think in code um, there's definitely no language I, I would choose above closure. It's just the the way I think now. Yeah. A bit of a segue. I was listening to some of the things that Uncle Bob's been talking about lately, um, and one of the areas that he was addressing was if you look at different uh, mathematical fields mm-hmm. over time, we've all kind of uh, settled on a consistent notation in mathematics originally if you go back through the papers from a couple hundred years ago um, guys were basically developing their own notations to uh, describe their ideas so half the paper was learning the notation before you actually got into the actual meat of it so what he was uh, proposing was that at some point, we're going to get to a point in um, software that we're going to settle on a single notation, or uh, at least a a single subset of all these notations that we have. And that the one that ticks all the boxes that he's looking for, at least, is closure. Uh, In terms of being homo-iconic, that code is data, data is code. Um, In terms of just being expressive as a general purpose language as well. What what's your thoughts around that kind of topic? I mean, and I haven't done enough closure to really have a an opinion on that. Uh, but I'd love to hear what someone who's done closure uh, would think about that. So um, you know, I'm I, I'm kind of an intuitive learner. I didn't really do any kind of book learning aside from the stuff I was forced to do at school. Um, so my my natural response is going to be quite a practical and pragmatic one. So. In, in actually using this 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 language in anger pretty much every day for the last couple of years um what's it it you know i can say that it is an um hugely useful to have all of your syntax basically whether you're looking at a piece of data or a piece of code um having it uniform and following the same consistent and simple set of rules um is tremendously valuable um when you need to uh you know navigate that code using a structured editor like Emacs, um, you know, you, you basically, whether you're navigating through data or navigating through code, it, it doesn't actually matter anymore. Um, because at, as far as Emacs is concerned, anyway, it's all just data. Um, also, te- you know, teaching um, um, the language to others, um, when you get to a language like C Sharp or Java or JavaScript, especially, there's so many edge cases and special, like, don't do that, you know, here be dragons kind of things. Um, that you have to remember. And there's a lot of kind of special knowledge that you have to build up to feel confident and safe. Um, whereas with Clojure, you know, we can teach you the, the four collection types and the several primitives and how um, some of the collection types compose to create, you know, the Clojure language. And we can teach it to you in an hour, you know, if we go slowly. Um, and then all that teaching will, will remain true for the rest of your career as a Clojure developer. Um, and that's incredibly powerful because when you come to learning new, la- you know, new DSLs, for example, Datomic has a, a query language called Datalog. You're you're learning what's different about Datalog 
and not what's what's different about the special syntax and the special characters that you you now you know are dealing with. Um, so it's it's you know from a practice speaking completely practically, it is hugely powerful and hugely liberating. It, it saves you a hell of a lot of time. So before we oh, head to datomic, maybe just unpack uh, the idea of the homo iconic code for the listeners a bit. I mean, I had a brief rundown before the show. So 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 this is basically this idea that uh, you can use um, um, the language to manipulate its own source code. So um, I, I haven't actually done any C language myself, um, but I know that if you want to manipulate C source um, with C, you've got to do all sorts of weird things. And this is what I understand anyway. Um, it basically the language for for writing for generating code is the same language as the code itself. It's there's no special separate templating syntax. Um, yeah, and and when you get to writing macros, which is basically closure code, normal closure code that runs at compile time instead of at runtime, you can generate closure code on the fly um, rather than you know writing uh, generators like Rails would have, where you generate scaffolds and things of that nature. Um, you can basically just wrap all of the code you would generate um, into this macro, and then it'll expand into the full code as you compile it, um, which is pretty cool. Um, and, uh, it, you know, again, it, it, you know, when you start to talk about um, the, the um, kind of the consequences of that, you start building up um, DSLs very, very quickly. There's a really nice quote, which I, I think kind of, well, there's, 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 there's two. Um, we've all played with Lego, right? Um, Closure or Lisp is the most Lego-like programming language you'll find. Um, and that's because of this homoiconicity thing. You know, it's all just the same shape. And there's another really nice quote, uh, I think, by Alan Kay, which is, Lisp isn't a programming language, it's a building material. You know, you write a little bit, and you write a little bit that builds on top of that, and you just kind of keep layering it up and up and up. Um, you know, so I don't know if that answers your question, but it, it's, it's, it does kind of point to the, the kind of things that, um, you know, homoiconicity allows for. Yes, that definitely answers it. Thanks. And, and actually, you just reminded me of something um, so I guess this is how generative testing or that quick check style testing actually mm. end up working is you have code that writes code. Am I right? Well, so the generative testing is really, you know, so there isn't actually, I think there are macros to simplify the code you as a generative testing user would write. So, you know, there's a lot of bootstrapping involved mm. um, and the macros hide all that away. Um, but the you know the actual test runtime, it's all just normal closure data. You're generating it at runtime and then immediately you know, running your running it through your code at runtime, and then gathering the results at runtime, and eventually shrinking it all back down so that you can see what happened. Um, so that doesn't actually benefit from macros so much, um, but you know, other than to clean up the DSL for end users. Um, but they, you know, there are many um, places where macros are valuable. For example, m many of the the um, the things that we use as closure developers, for example, defining a function, the defn form defn, that is actually a macro. And that's because it has to deal with all sorts of stuff like multiple, you know, arguments, um, variadic arguments, duck strings, metadata, all that stuff. And it's the macros that make otherwise impossible to write codes, you know, easy. Makes perfect sense. Thanks. Cool. Yeah, I remember hearing quotes of around macros is that a list programmer only writes half the program, and that half the program writes the other half the program. Yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, you definitely have situations where that's true. Um, you know, it, it's a bit of a rite of passage as a closure programmer when you kind of learn closure and your the top of your head starts lifting. 
you start to you know to get your head around all this cool stuff the the temptation is to immediately run away and start writing macros for everything and the rite of passage is when you realize that you should actually stop doing that and write you know as few macros as possible because macros are actually quite complicated things they introduce a lot of complexity and hidden hidden knowledge into your code um, yeah, so it's it's one of those things that you there's a very definite bell curve where you 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 lose use macros for everything and then you you go the other direction and you get you kind of get rid of them all again. Monkey patching and meta programming in Ruby. Yeah, it's it's a, you know it's it's like a razor. It's a sharp. You you're not gonna like eat your breakfast with a, a cutthroat razor, right? You're gonna use it when you need um, very very precision cutting, and that's when you should use it. But otherwise, you keep it safely locked away. Macros are very much the same kind of thing. In Ruby, at least, when we get to metaprogramming, which is sort of a similar concept, it's not yeah. quite the same, but um, as soon as you start trying to use metaprogramming to avoid repetition of code, you end up in a, a in a spiral, I find. Yeah. But it's very useful to use it to avoid repetition of an idea or concept. Yeah. Uh, do you find the same kind of thing with macros, where you want to avoid repetition of a concept in your code, not necessarily the repetition of a few lines of code. So, so the, 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 this is actually like, uh, this is a, a concept that happens over and over in, in the closure world. There's this idea of pushing the IO and the state of your applications to the boundaries, to the edges, to the beginnings and the ends of what happens and keeping the core, all of the work as a functional, you know, a pure functional core where all you're working with is functions that take and you know take values and return values based on what they were given. Um, and it's no different with writing macros. You basically, all of the actual hard work that your macro would otherwise do, that's, that's all just expressed as normal functions. So the work of actually parsing arguments and, and figuring out if you've got a duck string or not and all that kind of stuff, that's actually just given to normal functions to do. And you would only use a macro right at the end to wrap it all up so that you have a clean and simple, you know, interface as the end user of that macro. Um, perfect example, um, uh, test suites. So when you want to, when you write tests for your code, you don't want to write all the boilerplate that you have to write, you know, for your test harness to get its chance to spin up all the pre-test um, state manu you know, manufacturing. Um, you don't want to write all that boilerplate every time. And so all that stuff is hidden away uh, behind, a, a, you know, a test macro, a dev test macro. Um, and that, that's kind of where macros shine is, is, is in tidying up an otherwise verbose, but, you know, well-factored, um, API, um, so that it's easy to use for the common use cases. Now, what you described there of having that functional core, uh, I've heard it described as a functional core with an imperative shell. Yeah. Yeah. Where, yeah. That's, that's very true. Now I've seen a similar kind of drive happening in object oriented, uh, languages where, um, the core of what you're doing should be treated as something that's purely functional and e easier to reason about for those reasons. Yeah. Um, but then letting the edges of the system be the, um, you know, where you have your IO going onto your screen, whatever it may be. Or into uh, your database. Yeah. Database down the way to a network a device, anything that's attached, just treat that as an IO device, right? Exactly. Uh, but keeping that on the shell on the side, uh, doing that from an object oriented point of view, it sounds like it's, there's a lot of a trade or a lot of trade offs happening there where with closure now, uh, where closure does allow a lot more of that immutability functional style to happen at the core yeah. and, and possibly makes the edges a bit more difficult, at least for an OO developer to come at. 
Yeah, so so the the thing about closure is that it it prefers immutability and functional programming. So that's what it's kind of going going to promote, and that's what it's going to make easy. Um, and so you will like if you want to do IO imperative IO programming, you you will struggle. You will you will battle to get your head around it. I mean the the amount of time it took for me to just understand a four comprehension in closure when I was so used to my wonderful little you know for loop in JavaScript, which I had written way way too many of. Um, it, it took me a long time to actually get my head around that stuff um, because I was so used to thinking about it, you know, an OO programmer would. Um, so it is an adjustment. But once that adjustment is made, um, you tend to want to get whatever is input, input into your system into immutable uh, data structures as quickly as possible because then you can work with pure functions. Um, and to defer dealing with non-immutable data until the very, very last moment when you actually have to write to a screen or a file or a database. Um, and you know, if you've ever written a stateful object-oriented code versus um, and rewritten it in a, in a pure functional style, you'll know how much nicer the pure code is to work with. Um, you know, it's easy to test any little bit along the way without having to do a hell of a lot of mocking. Um, it's just wonderful. And so it's, it's kind of a, a natural consequence of, of solving problems in Clojure that you end up with that, as you say, functional core with an imperative shell. So does Clojure have any of these scary monads that we hear about? Apparently, the let binding, which is the, the thing that allows you to basically to take local bindings to values, apparently that is the value monad. That's what I, you know, somebody told me one day. I have no idea whether they were just pulling my leg or if it's actually true. Um, I, I still don't know what a monad actually is, and I probably won't ever learn. Um, again, pointing back to that practicality thing I have, you know, if I can't use it, I'm not interested. Um, because, you know, I've already got a whole bunch of tools that I can use to solve my problems and they're working great. There, there is an implementation of all the monads for closure if you want to go that way. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of practicality. Yeah, send me a postcard. <laughs> Speaking of practicality, is there any kind of stuff that Clojure is particularly well suited for and, and likewise stuff that it absolutely is not suited for? Yeah, so on, on the on the for side of things, um, you know, if you're working with data, that's a great fit. Um, and we all work with data, right? Um, so that's, that's probably a little bit too uh, broad a paintbrush. Um, but it actually is an accurate statement to make. So Clojure is a data-oriented language. Many times you'll end up with um, a lot of data, whether it's your 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 program data or configuration data, um, you know, control maps and sets and things like that, um, and you'll end up with a, little, a lot less functional code at the end. Um, and the code will just use the configuration data, you know, to do what it needs to do. Um, so, you know, when you when you learn to think that way and to solve problems problems that way, you put all try to put all of your complexity into your data. Because data is cheap, it's cheap to store, it's, it's easy to read, you know, it's, it's all just in front of you and you can immediately see what's going on. Um, and then to write simple but composable functions that know how to kind of get that, whatever that data might be, um, into the shape you eventually need it. Um, so if you're, if you're basically, if you're taking data and doing something with it and putting that data back down somewhere, you're almost certainly going to have a great time with Clojure. Um, and we, we, you know, we do a hell of a lot of that and we do have a great time with it. Um, you know, if you're dealing with, with, um, uh, our problem domain, we're basically just a web service. People get to, you know, read content on the website. They get asked, um, thought provoking questions. We capture their responses and, you know, that's the whole cycle. 
Um, and then there's a whole bunch of stuff wrapped around that, like engagement, um, you know, emailing people to get them to come back and stuff like that. Um, so data, definitely. Um, there are um, all sorts of awesome libraries in Clojure that allow you to do various things. So if you're doing um, big data things like uh, working with um, Hadoop and um, Casklog, there's awesome stuff in that domain. Um, if you're into logic programming, which I, I'm not even going to try to describe, I'll just point at it. Um, you know, there's awesome stuff there. Um, because Clojure is eight years old now, and there's a lot of different people using it who have come to us from a lot of different um, sort of um, other worlds. We've got, um, you know, I, for example, there is now a Clojure script REPL running inside Excel, Microsoft Excel. So you can now embed something into your Excel document, and you can actually code your Excel document with Clojure. That is, that's amazing. So there, there's that one space. <laughs> so there, there's one. There's another one, Unity 3D, which is that um, that gaming engine. There's a bunch of people who have brought um, Clojure on the .NET runtime into that space, so you can build your Unity games with that. Um, the you guys have almost certainly heard of a little JavaScript library called React. Yes, um, yeah. and there's there's React Native. Um, there's one guy with I think three or four people helping him who have basically given us Clojure scripts on iOS for React Native. Um, so you can write native um, iPhone apps and, and Android apps with Clojure scripts and never have to do anything except Clojure scripts, basically. Um, so even though Cl Clojure's strength is data and data orientation. Because it has so many practical um, and just useful things to it, that, you know, and, and ways to reason about your software and to keep things simple and, and organized, um, people are jamming it in every space they can find. Um, in, in terms of answering that question of like, where is it not so good? So historically, um, up until maybe the middle of last year, you couldn't really do kind of shell scripting kind of things with it because we always had to suffer the JVM. Um, startup time along with the closure bootstrap time um, and you know if there's one a pet peeve of mine for closure it's the startup time um, you know we, 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 we couldn't really write scripts but now there's a guy who's written a bootstrapped closure script um, runtime called plank um, and it's it's equivalent to running you know writing node.js scripts basically it's ridiculously fast so the you know the, the, the places where um, closure can't be effective or valuable, that list is is dwindling rapidly. Um, Android development, um, you know, actual um, you know, compiled Android development. Um, there's a guy writing an IntelliJ plugin in almost entirely enclosure. Um, I mean, it's all over the place. Wow, and um, I must say, yeah, I'm blown away. I didn't realize it's got such a big use case. I mean, we, if you're not in the community, I guess you're only really exposed. Well, I'm at least only exposed to what Len tells me and what Rich Hickey says. Well, yeah, and sure. I only watch the Rich Hickey videos because Len says so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's a good thing. It's I learned so That's much from those Donnie. ones. And Donnie. Yes, and Donnie. And a lot of other people, I guess. It's going back to me now. So I must <laughs> say, I've heard you use we and us extensively in that part of the conversation. So tell us a bit about the community that you see yourself a part of and the size and how welcoming they are to new people if they are and how people can get started. Yeah, geez, okay. The, this is another huge area of growth in the closure world. So when we started four years ago, it was still very much like, uh, you, know, we, you know, we'll keep the front door open, but find your own way around. The, the getting started story was quite rough. Um, and this was exactly kind of why I got, you know, got into it because the first one, well, not the first, I mean, there were other books, but this book in particular was quite compelling. 
but since then, there have been numerous books. One is called Closure for the Brave and True, which has seen great um, traction. There's a lot of people who are very happily using Closure because of that book. Um, huge amounts of awesome video tutorials, both free and paid. Um, that we've got a closure, sorry, yeah, a closure Slack channel, which is about 5,000 people strong now. Um, you know, we've got IRC, IRC channels, Google groups, all that good stuff. Um, you know, in terms of how many people are using closure, I have no idea. Um, it's in the tens of thousands, I would think. Isn't the latest uh, state of closure survey just come out? Yeah, it has. And I did try to kind of get a sense of the community size from there, but I will admit I didn't find anything that seemed even, you know, slightly scientifically accurate. Mm, sure, but, but a lot of the responses to the questions were in the sort of a thousand developers said. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I do know that Clojure is in a lot of, um, you know, a lot of interesting places. So um, we've all heard of Walmart in America. Every single invoice that Walmart prints across the entirety of the United States runs through a closure system. Um, I've heard tell that part of the iTunes backend at Apple is a closure system. Um, obviously, Amazon uses every language on the planet, so they're definitely using closure. Um, there are banks using closure. Um, you know, there's even a couple companies in South Africa using closure, like Yappy Chef and, and us. Um, even one of your uh, panel is using closure. So it's kind of everywhere. That's me. Um, that's you. Um, so in, in terms of the approachability, um, I went from a total noob in uh, pretty much early 2012 to going, being very, very lucky and being able to visit um, Portland in 2013 to go to the Closure West conference. And I actually got to meet Rich Hickey and Stuart Holloway and all these guys. Um, and they are the most approachable down-to-earth bunch of people you ever meet. I felt like I, you know, I was just sitting around with a bunch of guys. I didn't feel like I was um, around anybody, you know, particularly important. Um, these are all guys who love their craft, love what they do, um, love the principles that that have kind of been set out for the community. Um, those principles being a focus on simplicity um, and uh, a willingness to entertain any idea, basically. Um, and willingness to help. Um, so, you know, I think the, the community is great. It's incredibly approachable. Um, everybody who's active in the community now has almost certainly been helped out by like 20 other people in the community. And so there's a huge pay it forward kind of process that's just naturally occurring now. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you, you couldn't find a nicer bunch of people to, to learn programming from. That's pretty cool. The one guy we had at, um, Ruby Fusa last year, Andre Brassier, he's from Belgium. Okay. He, he is, was involved in a closure bridge recently, like oh, yes. in Berlin. So I was wondering if there's clo closure bridges here, or if there's been talk of having one year. Um, so I actually did try to start a little closure user group in Cape Town a couple of years ago. Um, and basically, um, you know, if you've ever run a user group, you know just how much work it actually is. Um, and we didn't really see many people attending. It was a hell of a lot of work to, um, to get it right. Um, but we did have a couple people. Um, I, I, you know, obviously, as somebody who who hires closure talent in South Africa, have a pretty clear interest in in growing the talent pool. Um, but more broadly speaking, um, the, the the closure bridge stuff is is um, awesome. So, if anybody doesn't know, if you've ever ever heard of Ruby Bridge, it's um, you know bringing programming um, skills to the previously disadvantaged or the underrepresented uh, minorities in our um, uh, community. Um, it's a really, really great way to, um, yeah, to teach and to, to kind of um, bring new people into the fold. 
Um, and I would be so totally up for running one if I knew there was any kind of interest at all. Um, and I'm sure I could get a bunch of people to come and help as well. Yeah, it might be. I don't know. It's like I say, it's really difficult to pull these things off. I was just curious. I was so nice watching the whole closure bridge well unfold in a few tweets over a weekend yeah. while they were doing their thing. And then there was another thing I picked up. I've got no idea what it is. The closure cup. Yeah. Which what's that all about? So that's a, a once a year competition. Um, it's, it's a typical hackathon competition. You know, you've got 48 hours and as many liters of caffeine as you can imbibe um, to get something interesting built. Um, and I think it's teams of one to four people. Um, and yeah, loads of cool prizes, you know, um, in, in industry sponsored prizes. Um, and one of our guys, Nikita, who, who wrote, who's written quite a lot of interesting and valuable uh, or, or well, you know, well valued, um, closure script open source. Um, he, he's, they, he's competed every year. Um, and I think he actually might have won. I don't know if he got first place, but he got, got pretty close to first place last year. Um, yeah, and he's he's built some really interesting stuff there. Um, but I'm sure the Rails community must be quite full of these kinds of things as well, right? Yeah, Kevin, what's that um, 20 or 48 hour Rails competition? I'm blanking on it right now. Me too. I'll put a link in the show notes. But yeah, it is quite an interesting thing. And I think the Node guys also have these Rails same Rumble. Competi- Rails, Rails Rumble, that's Rumble. the one, yeah. And then the no jitsu guys used to have something similar as well. I can't remember. Yeah, no knockout. No yes. Okay, that's pretty cool. Like, I don't know. To me, that's signs of a healthy community. All this wide variety of different things happening to engage people at at different levels. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I guess then from my side, the final thing. It seems like no closure talk is ever complete without talking about datomic yeah do you want to give us the i gotta save that for last but let's like give us the breakdown of what it is and what makes it so amazing okay so i've had a lot of practice at this at at, at saying what i'm about to say so maybe i'll get it um, you know (laughs) concise or not you know if i've taught all of our developers it and i've uh, given some talks in it so here goes so basically um in closure you've got these immutable data structures and there's only really four or five of them four i think so that's maps, sets, vectors, and lists, and they all have their own kind of uses and, and capabilities, but they're all ultimately immutable data structures. Um, these are really nice to program with when you're in a single process because you can, you know, you can depend on them not changing halfway through your function executing, um, and um, you know they, they work really great in a single app process. Um, but before Datomic, there was really no way to provide that same level of um, of immutable consistency between app processes, so basically at scale, or also as data at rest on disk. And basically, that's what Datomic is there to solve. It's there to give you what you have with immutable data structures in a single process. It's there to bring that same level of capability and, most importantly, um, ability to reason about your program um, to your entire stack. Um, And that's how we use it. We don't have any database in our system apart from Datomic. Well, we've actually got two immutable databases. Um, one is Datomic and the other one is Git. Um, and it's actually quite interesting to realize that, that Git is itself an immutable database, although you can mutate it if you want to, but you know, generally speaking, we use it as an immutable database. So um, how Datomic does that, there's obviously a lot of details involved, um, but uh, the, you know, the, the, it's, there's a couple key things. It is actually ACID compliant. So you can, um, you know, you've, you've got consistency, you've got atomicity and all those good things. Um, it is strongly time ordered. So basically everything has a, everything happens at a point in time. 
um, and you can basically query into the past. So you can say quite trivially, and I mean, it's, it's, it is truly trivial. You can say, pretend it's last Tuesday. What does the database look like? Um, and we've been doing that for three years, nearly. Um, 30 million transactions and counting in the database. Um, you can do all, I mean, it's crazy. You can do all sorts of what if databases, um, you know, where you can, you can pretend to, tra to transact data into your database and then query against it without actually committing the transaction. Um, it's, it's crazy. Um, yeah. I can, I can obviously tell you a lot more. We could spend another two hours here, but I'll pause there and see if there are any, uh, questions that might clarify things a bit. No, that was very succinct. Thank you. I uh, well, the one thing I'm curious about is that time, the, the, like strongly ordered by time and, and being able to do the back in the past. Yeah. I understand that's like enclosure itself also kind of fundamental, the ability that to protect against the side effects of time. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if you want to, you know, because we have immutable data structures, um, it's, it, it's very memory efficient to just keep references to a bunch of different successive um, values as it changes. So you might start with, you know, a user that has an email address of A, um, and then you would store a new reference to that user once you change the email to B. But if you kept a reference to A or to the, the user when it was A, you and you hold on to that reference, you can inspect that reference and you'll still see the email as A and not B. So that, I mean, and again, that's also a fairly trivial and straightforward thing to do in Clojure. Um, and, and Datomic basically does that but makes it possible so that you can reboot your process and store it all on disk in, in between, you know, all those. Um, so, so when you go back in time in Datomic, you're literally saying, pretend it's Tuesday. You're saying, you're giving it a date. You're saying, you know, give me the database as of, you know, the middle of Tuesday last week. Um, and then everything that comes back to you will be everything that's asserted up until Tuesday last week. Um, yeah. That must be a dream for trying to, Audit things. Oh yeah, so um, we, we've got an audit trail in our database, um, and it was ten lines of code to add. Um, every single web session um, um, tags each transaction that it creates with the user who did it, and all of our backend systems do the same thing. So if anything changes, we just have to go and look at the transaction history for that particular attribute and that particular entity, um, and we get a little you know ten line query which will give us a nice time ordered list of who did what. Um, you know, and I'm talking about 20 extra lines of code in total on top of all the usual app stuff. It's nuts. <laughs> yeah, I know. Breathless. <laughs> yeah, I just love this whole idea of like guarding against the effects of time. Yeah. The example I think Rich Hickey used was an athlete in a walking contest. You have to have at least one foot on the ground at all times. Yeah. Um, so what's the algorithm for that? You check one foot and then you check the other foot. Uh, but if time has passed, you could end up with invalid results yeah. and this just protects you against that kind of thing yeah i mean how many times have we run into problems where where data changes in the hundredth of a second yeah. it takes for an algorithm to run yeah so i can i can actually speak quite directly to um a, a benefit of datomic there so if you've ever written um a, something with a big you know a sql system with with big queries where you've for example you've had to list a hundred users and then you also have to fetch you know a myriad number of fields for each user, you generally end up writing one mega SQL query, which does the, the select, you know, which, which users you want, and all the fields and all the joins all in one go. And that's because you're trying to protect against this, the, the effect of time. You don't want um, users who no longer qualify um, for the select portion when you're going through and realizing all of the results on the, on the details portion, right? So you pull it all at once. 
Datomic makes it so that that is just a non-issue. Once you once you say I've got a database at this point in time, you can hold on to that reference or actually regenerate that reference, and you can hold on to it for three months, and you can still query against that value. You can still see exactly the state of the database at that time. And in fact, we in our web requests we do exactly this. So we've got middleware that will inject the database at the point that the middleware runs into the request data. And then all of the requests that get processed, all of the queries that get processed during the lifetime of that request are all against that consistent database value. And then all the transactions that occur, you know, are based on whatever, it, you know, it was found in that consistent database value. Um, it's just, um, it's, it's just a sanity restorative, basically. You just, you just stop worrying about an entire class of problems, like permanently. Yeah, so effectively, you the value that you get is a window into your entire database yeah. at a single point in time. Well, uh, uh, and that's always referenceable. Time, yeah, it includes all of the past up until then as well. So yeah, and you can reference that at any point in the future yep. going forward. Yep. Awesome. So with this middleware, even if you have a hefty endpoint that's doing reporting, yeah, and that takes a minute for that entire minute. Your code only ever sees that snapshot, no matter what changed afterwards. That's correct. So, so you think about that's amazing. Yeah, so think about what effect that has on your your the queries you write. Now, your queries express the intent of the reporting rather than the realities of the SQL engine you're using to do the reporting. So now you're saying, I want a list of users, single, simple, pure function. If you treat a datomic database as an immutable value, anything that takes it as an input is a pure function. And then separately, when you iterate through those users to fetch all sorts of details, you know, maybe you've got three different sections of details you fetch, the core details, you know, the order summary and the product summary. Um, that's three separate queries, which you can just arbitrarily compose. Um, and the code all remains composable and separate and simple. Um, and you don't end up with this mammoth, you know, query, which sucks down the entire world. Um, yeah. So it, it, it's, it's, like I said, it's a sanity restorative. You, 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 you forget. That you you know that time is passing because you don't worry about it anymore. Wow, <laughs> it is pretty wild. I mean, I've been using it for four, nearly four years, and it still blows the top of my head off. Yeah, I'm just thinking. I've written audit gems uh, that help people track the changes on the one yeah. side, and then all the other kind of fights you've got to have, or you end up building weird backend systems that do like the classic ETL thing and throws it off into yeah. we used to throw it traditionally into something like Calc or Mongo. Like, yeah, yeah, there's a final report. Now we can go delete data out of our relational database. Yeah. It's just, you know, a classic shopping cart and checkout. You need to copy the product information to there. Yeah. Otherwise Defensive you can never copying. Yeah, you can never ever delete it if something yeah. it's wow. <laughs> so, 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 so we, I mean, like digging into it, we're probably running out of time, but digging into it, what, what, where, where this stuff really um, gets like meter and um, uh, amazing is where, uh, when you realize that transactions in the database are themselves reified as entities in the database. So you can do things like link your shopping cart to the point in time where you set the price on the product. So whenever you need to find out what the price for that product was, you've actually got a direct handle to the point in time where the price was. And you can just query the database for the price at that point in time. You don't have to defensively write the price to the, you know, and store it separately. Yeah, Rob, I think we need to get you back on for another show on this. Cool. Uh, talking just about Datomic and the effects that it has on your database design and your coding going from there. Happily. I, I, I'm ridiculously um, um, capable of talking about this kind of stuff for a long time. So happily. And the, the, the whole time thing, because I think it's so... 
it's almost implicit. We don't even realize what we joins in that way as, as a yeah. defense against time. You think about it as optimization, you know, like don't send too much stuff over the wire. Let the database crunch and do things yeah. away. But yeah, it's this whole extra world that's not yeah. accounted for. Yeah, I definitely agree we should have a datomic show. Um, the other thing, of course, is that all of this stuff, um, this immutability stuff and the strong notion of time stuff, we haven't even spoken about how it plays out in the, the UI yet. Um, and how, particularly, how it plays out with React. Um, it just does an incredibly amazing mind. things there, well, as well. So yeah, we can definitely do an episode too. There's still plenty, plenty to talk about. Yeah, I think so. Cool. Instead of going down the rabbit hole now, it's until yes. the sun comes up, and our yes. listeners won't be too happy. <laughs> yeah, since we are up on time, uh, shall we start heading into some picks, guys? Kenny, do you want to kick us off on that? Yes, I'm going to definitely steal one out of the of everybody. Uh, the Rich Hickey Simple Made Easy Talk. Uh, it was the first talk Len bullied me into watching, and I put it off and put it off, and I was so sad I didn't watch it before. It's fantastic. So Absolutely. I've since then been bullying other people with it. Like, yeah. It's a mind changer. I definitely think, given what we talked about, that for me is just the only pick for tonight. Cool. Len? Um, going along the list lines, the, the SICP book, I think is great. I'll, I'll drop a link in the show notes, but I think it's, it's a very, very good book to read about the background of this kind of functional approach and uh, that sort of world. Um, be sure to link the, the actual talks given by the authors at MIT as well. Those are all online and freely available. Okay, great. Oh, Rob? Cool. So I've got a number of picks. Um, the one that if you speak to any closure developer, well, maybe not so much recently, but um, people with my kind of tenure, um, Emacs. Emacs is a, my, one of my picks. Um, it'll change your life, um, sometimes not always for the better, um, <laughs> but it will. you'll definitely learn and grow. And it's a, an amazing way to stretch your brain. Uh, another pick I have, um, which is kind of partially because Emacs is, uh, and this is way out of left field, which is mindfulness meditation. Basically, um, just keeping your your brain screwed on right so you can deal with Emacs. Um, <laughs> and then um, there's another one. Um, there's a really really good talk which I highly recommend. This was this was watching this talk where really kind of brought a lot of the the stuff that we've been talking about tonight home and 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 made me realize just how well it actually clicks. I'll I'll share it in the uh, the link for the show notes. It's a talk by a guy called Tim Ewald. And he basically wrote on the, the, the you know, software craftsmanship um, and the value of building your own tools fit to purpose rather than just using Framework X. Um, and you know, he doesn't really motivate for one or the other too much. He just asks a whole bunch of really interesting questions. Um, Ooh, that, sounds, draws, that sounds super interesting. Yeah, and he draws a great parallel between like programming and woodworking, which is one of his big passions. So um, I'll share the link, and yeah, I'm pretty sure you'll you'll love it. And then the, the, the last pick I have, because I'm, I'm getting being greedy, um, is just teaching people stuff. I've been doing a lot of that lately, lately, given how big our team has become. And I've just realized how, um, awesome it is to actually, you know, um, to teach people things, um, and how, how valuable it is for your own learning. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, yeah. From my side, then I'm going to still pick just out on, underneath everyone is Space Max. <laughs> so we've been talking about Emacs and Emacs is a, Fantastic editor. Uh, yeah. If you've been using VI, Vim, uh, or if, even if you haven't, I guess, take a look at Space Max. It kind of gives you a, a base configuration for Emacs that's based on Evil mode. 
So uh, you can use it with pure Emacs mode as well. But yeah. Uh, it just gels very nicely with uh, with the evil mode Vim emulation. Vim user especially, give it a try. Uh, I highly encourage you. Uh, after I'd been using Vim for a few years, I switched over to Space Max uh, based Emacs, and within about an hour to two hours, I was more productive in Emacs than I was in Vim. So definitely give that a shot, uh, especially with its Emacs Lisp uh, as a backend. Yeah, especially I think the best thing I found about that was dropping Vim script in favor of Emacs Lisp was just glorious. Mm, I, I haven't done much Vim script, but I believe it's a particularly scratchy language. Uh, it's horrid. <laughs> it's horrid. There's no way around it. It's just plain horrible, is it? Uh, and then my second pick is just a web app called Coggle. Uh, if you want to just can do it to way of building mind maps in a uh, just in a single page app on the web. Don't want to install any software. Coggle works pretty well. It's got how, nice how do you spell shortcuts. that, Kevin? C-O-G-G-E. Yeah, so there will be a link in the show notes. But yeah, just check that out if you want some fairly rudimentary mind mapping software. It's not nothing too fancy, but it gets the job done. There's a free version. And I think if you do go onto the paid versions, there are uh, you get more features through that. But uh, for my, my needs, I've just had a blast with the free version. Well, that's it for me. Then. I have to cool. add with the space maxing, the one thing I've been really getting into lately is understanding its mnemonics in the way the keys are set up. And it is really powerful once you get around it. That Those mm. authors of the community around that as a whole has really worked hard to get that flowing. And it's also causing me to be way more productive than I ever was in Vim. Yeah, I found I've been doing it. I needed to use Vim for something in the last while and I ended up rebinding <laughs> some of the Space Max Minimonic uh, stuff back into Vim. Unreal. Alright, well that wraps it up for episode 27 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. Rob, thanks for joining us. It's been a fantastic discussion. Really enjoyed it. Absolutely my pleasure. Thanks, Rob. This episode will be live by Wednesday, the 3rd of February, so on the 4th and 5th, Rub- Ruby Fuso is happening and Kenneth and I are both going to be there. So please come say hello to us, come have a chat with us. Um, then another day to diarize is the 8th of March that uh, DevConf is happening up in Johannesburg. We're going to be producing a show there at the conference. We're going to be interviewing people. So please come say hello to us there, check in with us. Apart from that, also, uh, you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. Any ratings, feedback would be greatly appreciated. Have a great week, guys. Cheers. 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 Thank you.